Doctor. Come on, what? What? Always do the right thing. That's it? That's it. I got it. I'm gone. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Wong. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We've arrived at episode 41. We're back to Cole's choice. What are we discussing today? We are discussing Do the Right Thing from 1989. Written, produced, and directed by Spike Lee, and with cinematography by Ernest Dickerson. And starring a huge cast of fantastic actors, including Spike himself, Ossie Davis, Ruby Dee, Danny Aiello, John Turturro, Giancarlo Esposito, Rosie Perez, Bill Nunn, Samuel L. Jackson, Richard Edson, Steve White, Robin Harris, Martin Lawrence, Joa Lee, and on and on and on. It is Spike's third full-length feature film and his greatest achievement, in my estimation. It's the story of one particular day in the life of the Bed-Stuy neighborhood in Brooklyn, which happens to be the hottest day of the year, that culminates in racial tensions boiling over into a horrible finale of destruction and violence. I knew in 1989, from the very first seconds of this thing, that I was going to love this movie because of the music right away. The music is a big deal in Spike's films in general, but I don't think any of them possibly more iconic than this one. And it's the perfect melding of his father, Bill Lee's score, into Public Enemy's Fight the Power, which, again, a big deal for me. In 1989, I probably listened to Nation of Millions, Fear of Black Planet, and Apocalypse 91, those three records in particular, as much as I listened to any music in that stretch of the late 80s into the early 90s. In mainstream cinema, or even in most independent cinema, you did not see attention being paid to hip-hop, and especially an entire song, a full-length song, being played over the opening sequence this way. You might hear snippets, you might hear 30 seconds to a minute, but you never saw a four-plus-minute song used in its entirety to set the tone for an entire film, which is exactly what this does. It announces itself. And then some. Which is weird to say that films weren't paying that much attention to hip-hop because at that time, it was the maybe the last true golden era of hip-hop music, period. We were in the middle of Tribe Called Quest, De La Soul, moving toward mid-period Run DMC, Public Enemy, and on and on and on. So many important voices and yet it did not turn up in mainstream film very often. So, you do what Spike does. You take your resources and you make your own. Another aspect of this opening, not so common then or now, is to see a woman of color announcing herself in the way that Rosie Perez does. She looks like she is going to burst through the screen to me. I think furious is the word I wrote in my notes here. Here's what I wrote. Profound, power, Softness, talent, anger, deafness, and fury. She has all of those things. And in the days of reading things like Dress Like a Woman, I think about every tonal change 
in the course of this song and her dance and what she is wearing, what that costume design announces about what's to come and how we're to view this woman, this woman of color, all women, the neighborhood itself. I think it is incredibly profound that Spike chose this as the way to start the film. And was banking a lot on the charisma and energy of a complete newcomer. This was her first feature film. They essentially met when he was telling her to get down off the speaker at one of his parties so she didn't break her neck. And she cursed at him. And he heard that voice and he thought, okay, we've got to do something with this. I've got in capital letters later on that voice. And it's something greater than sexuality that she is displaying. There is that in there, but it's just something so much larger than that. And you know I'm a big fan of dance. We've covered it in the show. You know I want to watch that opening over and over and over mm-hmm. again. So from this desperate and furious beginning, backed by one of hip-hop's all-time great anthems, we segue into meeting the people who live in the neighborhood. And this is essentially what takes up the first 20 or 30 minutes of the film. Because the cast, like I mentioned at the top, is immense. And each one of them is crucial. You take any one of them away and you get a little bit less of the flavor of the neighborhood. Definitely. You would lose out on representation and voice. And humor and joy and all of the myriad things that this cast contributes to Spike's vision. You mentioned humor a second ago. And I think I said this. I watched it first, I would say 1990. Mm -hmm. I saw it on video. And then hadn't watched it again since we did it for the show. And I forgot how funny it is. It's hilarious. Oh my gosh. I know people tend to think of it as this big, incendiary, important political film. But the vast majority of it is just people living their lives. And a bunch of the people doing that are hilarious. You've got comedians, literal comedians in the film. You've got Martin Lawrence. You've got Steve Park, who plays the Korean shop owner. You've got Steve White, and at the top of all that, you've got Robin Harris, who nobody is funnier than. (laughs) No. Yeah, it was a sad day when we lost him. Super young, too, at the time. And just a year after the film Mm -hmm. came out, he was only 36, I believe. And as you were talking about, I don't want anybody to get the sense, if there's been a gap of time since you've seen this, or maybe you've never seen it, I don't have any kind of feeling that the movie gets weighed down by any kind of message. It's very buoyant. So I think it's another instance of, you may think you remember the film, you may think you know what it is, go in again. There are people that might argue how strident or didactic Spike is. You're right though, it doesn't feel that way to me. Strident and didactic are possibly words that people have used to describe me, so I'm on that side. They've definitely used them to describe (laughs) me, so you're right. Maybe we just identify with that, and so it's just second nature. The very first voice we hear is the very distinctive to us now, but probably not so much then, voice of Samuel L. Jackson as Mr. Senior Love Daddy, the local DJ, calling back to the film before school days which ended with the exact same line that this film begins with wake up not being strident or didactic right to start that way (laughs) it's not strident or didactic if it's right right it can be (laughs) those two things are not mutually exclusive minorly tongue-in-cheekly we meet him right away and it is established that he is the voice of the community one of two people who sort of acts as the conscience 
of the community throughout the film. I would say that duty is split between Samuel L. Jackson and Ossie Davis. Now, before we meet Ossie Davis in this, we see the actual physical neighborhood itself, Mm -hmm. shot on location. The super interesting thing to me is the production designer chose to make the colors of the roads and the cars and the building facades brighter to reflect what looked like a heat wave, and I think it works. Definitely. So it's real, and it's hyper-real at the same time. I think what I thought of when I saw it in 1989 for the first time, without knowing what a student of those films Spike Lee was, was how much it looked like that hyper-stylized version of musical New York that you see a lot. Back alleys and fire escapes and everything, like you mentioned, hyper-real when it comes to the color and the production design. We do have to remember that this was the late 80s into the early 90s, so that everything was Keith Haring and bright colors. Fashion was not at its most subtle at this point in our lives. Correct. Now into this mix, we meet Ossie Davis, the mayor. I want to just stop for a second and talk about Ossie Davis. Okay. A man who was born in 1917, okay? He was an actor, director, poet, playwright, author, civil rights activist. The KKK threatened to shoot his father. He had begun his career at this point in 1989, some 50 years before 1939. He had been working for five decades at this point. Think of what using someone of the caliber of Ossie Davis brings to your film. That's one thing that I think was most impressive to me about that. When I look back at this, I had been a fan already. I had managed in my small corner of Southwest Oklahoma, however I managed to do that, I don't remember, to find She's Gotta Have It and School Days. And I liked one, loved the second one. And then this came along and I couldn't comprehend what a geometric increase from the first to the second and then the second to the third this was. A lot of it, I think, in retrospect, can be attributed to the caliber of the cast and the performances that they give in this. And I don't necessarily want to take five minutes to eulogize every single wonderful person in this, Mm. but Ossie Davis, he deserves it. If anyone deserves it, he does. After we meet Demare, we meet Smiley, the street preacher. He's got the massive stutter. He's showing his pictures of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. And this actor is Roger Gwynver Smith. And I know I said I didn't want to get into everybody's credits, but a lot of these actors, performers, have been working for so long. And I really want to help people connect the dots on Mm -hmm. this. My exposure to him, at least the greatest part of it, was through the five movies that he made with Spike. For me, it's a little bit more of his playwright side. He did the Huey Long one-man show, and they Spike filmed it at Center Stage in Baltimore, where I, which was an area I used to work in, and I saw it on PBS, and I know him a little bit from that, too. Okay, so we won't get bogged down in credits a ton, because there are a lot of characters to meet in this introductory segment, so I just want to go through some of the more important ones and what we glean from meeting them. Next, we meet Mookie played by Spike Lee, who is the central character of the film. He works at Sal's Pizzeria, delivering pizzas. And he's being continually chastised by his sister and by some other folks to take care of his responsibilities. So he hasn't quite grown up yet, is what it feels like. Definitely. He is concerned with making that money. 
That's how we meet him. When we meet him, he is counting his money, which is probably the best mood he's in all day. Soon after that, we meet his employer, Sal, played by Danny Aiello, and his two sons, Pino, played by John Turturro, and Vito, played by one of my favorites, Richard Edson, who I do want to go into his credits a little bit because he did a lot of great work with Jim Jarmusch, played drums in Sonic Youth, and delivered one of the funniest lines ever in Let It Ride with Richard Dreyfuss. His delivery is impeccable. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Go find it. You, I'm going to make you sit through the whole movie just to get to the point where Richard Edson says one of the funniest things you'll ever hear. I really don't want to sit through that whole movie again. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. We're going to watch it again. Oh, okay. Moving on. So what we learn with the Sal, Pino, and Vito scene is that Pino hates the place. Vito is the continually beleaguered younger brother. Sal is really happy to be there in the place that he's built. But there is a portent of danger later on. He does say, I'm going to kill somebody today because it is so hot. Not just that it's so hot, but his sons are a never-ending source of frustration as well with their constant bickering. And in particular, with Pino and his overt racism, I think some of the tension that causes with Sal is that he's reflecting some of Sal back to himself that he does not want to freely admit to. And I think with both brothers, and again with Mookie, these are people who are older than how they act. They should know better at this point, you would think, you would hope. So Mookie hits the street. He's on his way to work. And it's a scene that's pretty familiar to me. It's the people on the street where you live. It's the families, it's the people walking by. And we see Ruby D, who is mother-sister in this, Ruby D also an acting powerhouse wife of Ossie Davis. And then there's the boombox. And it's Radio <laughs> Rahim Cold Rock in the scene. Did you ever have a boombox that size? Oh, I, what I was going to say is, hell yes, did I have a boombox? <laughs> Not that size, sadly. No, I think mine, the biggest one I had was probably half that size. Maybe a little bigger than half that size. But mine only took 8D energizers, not... 20. Exactly. Mine was of that lower down and slightly wider variety, but yeah, it could not compete with Radio Rahim. And Radio Rahim played by the sadly late great Bill Nunn. By the way, who went to college with Spike Lee. Hmm. That's how they met. Well, Radio Rahim only plays Public Enemy. Only plays Fight the Power. Now, did you have a tape that you played into the ground over and over and over again? Yes, you don't want to know what any of those were <laughs> in any of those one. years. Just give me one. Well, I did listen to Lisa Lisa a whole lot. That was a few years before that. Okay. Probably at that time, what would I have been listening to still? Bon Jovi, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> oh, I'll tell you what. Some Madonna over and mm, over okay. and over and over again. Okay, from Radio Rahim, we go on to meet the Korean shopkeeping husband and wife. We also meet Tina, played by Rosie Perez, here also introduced with the son that she has with Spike's character, Mookie, Hector. Just one of the responsibilities that Mookie is not too fond of keeping up with. We move along from them to our Greek chorus, sitting on the corner, <laughs> with ML, Coconut Sid, and Sweet Dig Willie. <laughs> Fuck Mike Tyson. <laughs> Seriously, 
anyone who says that this movie is not fun hasn't watched it, like you mentioned, maybe in 20 years. They have a completely distorted view of just how much life exudes from this movie. And if you don't think these guys are funny, then you don't have uncles, basically. Because <laughs> that's who these guys are, sitting on the corner. These are my uncles. Everybody's uncles, I would assume, for that matter. I just project and assume that everybody's uncles act like mine. But you know these guys. Definitely. For me, it's a little bit more about the neighborhood people mm. than maybe family relationships. Okay. I recognize those guys from my neighborhood. Okay. And so the last of the major neighborhood characters that get introduced here is Buggin' Out, played by Giancarlo Esposito. And he stops in Sal's to get a slice and discovers to his consternation, actually something I'm sure he's noticed before, but today, maybe because it's so hot and everyone is so irritable, he voices his objection for the first time. Why are there no black people on your wall of fame? They're all Italians. Mm -hmm. I do get the sense, though, that I think at this point they've had this argument many times before because they wouldn't be pitched so angrily if this was the first time they hmm. were ever talking about it. Okay. This is probably not with this again today. Okay. And Sal responds, you get your own place, put whoever you want on the wall. I made this place. This is my heritage. I'll put up who I want. Bugging out, his argument is valid too. I don't see Italians spending money in here. The black community is who keeps you in business. How about we recognize that? This is probably the first instance for me in the film where Spike sets up this tension where each person is at least a little bit right. There's no black and white. There is no definitive answer throughout the film. A lot of gray. It's very fluid who you could potentially see to be in the right on either side of these arguments throughout the movie. And we've learned that Sal and his family, they no longer live in this neighborhood. So they're still operating this business, but they've, at least at this point, long since moved out. It's no accident that Spike has written into this screenplay that Sal and his sons are from Bensonhurst. And later, that when Sal brings out his weapon of choice, that it's a baseball bat. Because you have echoes of Yusuf Hawkins being killed in Bensonhurst where he and a few friends were attacked by a group of accounts, say anywhere between 10 and 30 Italian people from that neighborhood attacked with baseball bats. All of these things are supposed to be specific signifiers to anyone who was keeping up with the news, at least coming out of the five boroughs. Would this be a good moment to interject a little bit of the background of the neighborhood? Sure. So the neighborhood of Bedford Stuyvesant or Stuyvesant I don't how do you pronounce it I always say Stuyvesant, Stuyvesant. I guess I do my Virginia do inflections in the different uh, syllables so I'll just say Bedsty. if we go back to how the neighborhood has changed over the years in the early 1900s it was mostly Jews and Italians who had come over from the lower east side of Manhattan and this was because of the Williamsburg Bridge. Mm -hmm. Now, by the 1930s, we, of course, have the great migration from the south to the north of American blacks. We've also got immigrants from the Caribbean as well. So at this point in the 30s, the neighborhood's black population was around 30,000 people. It was the second largest black community in the city. And then with World War II, we see it change a little bit again. And we've got with 
more opportunities for employment, Jews and Italians move out to Queens and Long Island. So again, I think about Sal and his family and their mm -hmm. subtle migration. By the 1950s, the number of blacks in the neighborhood was 155,000. And I do want to say the town that I grew up in was that population. And think about that for an entire neighborhood. It's even harder for me to fathom because the town that I grew up in was 1,500 people. Absolutely. And there was one black family that lived there the entire time that I lived there for 18 years. And again in 1950, they made up about 55% of the entire population of the neighborhood of Bed-Stuy. So then another phenomenon starts, which is blockbusting, which is something I had heard about but didn't really understand. What this is, is that real estate agents and business developers would convince white property owners to sell their houses at lower prices, saying that minorities are going to start moving into this neighborhood. So using fear to promote this idea of white flight. They could then buy up those houses and sell them to black families at much higher prices because they were more desperate for housing at that point. And then as we go into the 60s, 85% of the population of the neighborhood was black. And then by the time we get to the 1960s, we've got several specific instances of race riots that resulted in a lot of destruction. We see and are more aware of at that point racially based law enforcement techniques. Mm -hmm. We also begin to become more aware that prosecutions, arrests for drug-related crimes are much higher in these neighborhoods than anywhere else. You say we. I want to make a specific point here. You are talking about white America because You're what right. you are saying, Thank you. black America has known this Absolutely. for decades. Absolutely. Thank you for clarifying that. Those of us who were not paying attention before, mm -hmm. paying attention now, hopefully. So again, to continue through the 60s, we see high levels of poverty, higher levels of crime, this is in Bed-Stuy? Yes. That was specifically where Robert Kennedy launched a study about problems facing the urban poor mm. at that time as well. And then it begins to change somewhat. There's more urban development happening, more focus on infrastructure and mortgage assistance. Then we've got, of course, the blackout in 1977. Mm -hmm. And it was focused in Bed-Stuy and Bushwick. Those were two of the worst hit areas because of the looting, the fires, the destruction. So then it takes us up to the point of this movie, where we are. We've got a racially mixed neighborhood, still primarily African-American. But it's gone through a number of significant evolutions in just a few decades prior to the start of this film. We've got people primarily owning the homes that they live in, okay. but we haven't gone fully into gentrification. Specifically in Bed-Stuy. Yes. Which eventually happens. Definitely. The 2000s is when that fully tips over. But in 1989, the point is Sal doesn't live there anymore. But he feels invested in the community, obviously. He talks about it at great length multiple times. Especially about how he has watched for 25 years these kids grow up on his food. It's something he's very proud of. But in this particular instance, even though, like you suggest, he and Buggin' Out may have had this conversation multiple times, he's had it today. They're at a boiling point, and Buggin' Out is going to organize a boycott of Sal's, which I don't know how you're going to do that. How you're not going to go to the only pizzeria in the neighborhood? It's crazy talk. Yeah. Which a number of the characters say to him <laughs> when he is trying to generate some support for his movement. 
So nobody's really feeling the political activism necessarily at this point. No, he and Mookie, in fact, have a little bit of a discussion right here. And Mookie's whole thing is, this is where I have to work. Don't mess this up for me. Mookie is kind of an isolationist, it seems like. He occupies such a unique position in the neighborhood, which is borne out by two directives that he is given right here. At the conclusion of their conversation, Buggin' Out reminds him, stay black, which he says to him a couple of times. This is the first time we hear it. He, he specifically admonishes him to remember that he is a black man. And on the flip side of that, Sal is the one who forces him to get Buggin' Out out of the pizzeria. So he's acting as sort of a go-between? He's got to be the one to keep the peace mm. and then also keep his employer complacent in a way. Soon after this, as he is on his way to make a delivery, the mayor stops him in the scene that we enacted in the very opening of the show and admonishes him to remember to always do the right thing. Which, again, is a little mercurial. Not everyone's definition of the right thing is going to be the same. It's true, and... Again, going back to political activism versus pizza, Mookie has to be looking at the bottom line, which is he has to get paid. Mm -hmm. We constantly hear from people telling other people in the film, get a job. There are fewer jobs available out there. So if you have one, you need to hang on to it. It reminds me a little bit of Meet John Doe when we were talking about, you mentioned the Winston Churchill quote about we're all whores. We're just negotiating over the price. Right. So can you get that you need to know where your next meal is coming from? That might take precedence over there are no black people on this wall of mm. fame inside this neighborhood pizzeria. So Mookie hasn't taken a stand one way or the other yet. No. In fact, he maintains that ambivalence for quite a long time. Okay, so we're coming up on our first sort of act break where everyone... Is just trying to slow down, take a second, and cool off because it's so hot. So we've met all the major players, and we've established mood and temperament and little character bits for every one of them. A lot has happened in this first 20, 30 minutes or so. Should we talk about how we think each one of those characters functions right here? What is their role in the neighborhood and in relation to the action of the film? Mookie, we've mentioned, central character at this point has one foot in each world, has to keep the peace, has to keep his job, apolitical. Is that how you would describe his position, or is it something different? For me, I go back to that idea of him consistently forsaking his responsibilities. Mm -hmm. It feels more juvenile than okay. anything. Immature. Okay. Smiley. How about Smiley? I think of him as the reminder of what the legacy is. He's talking about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., two pillars of the community, killed, trying to remind every person, the juvenile, the political, the apolitical, of what came before us. Is the fact that the stutter and the impairment is so exaggerated? How do you react to that? I think of him instinctively as the person who has to be protected mm -hmm. and we know later on that's not accurate no not at all but it's an almost easy way to show in a scene later on when sal is treating him with kindness and pino with contempt that's sort of shorthand for that person's a dirtbag mm. smiley functions for me in two specifically important ways one in relation to the stutter it is a not so subtle implication 
about the absence of a voice. Definitely. And then the other part of it being specifically the question that the pictures that he's selling of Malcolm and Martin, and especially when you get to the end and you have those quotations from each of those men juxtaposed, I think one of these difficult questions that it's asking is, can these two viewpoints be merged in some significant way? Because you mentioned they were cut down well before their prime, and as they were each evolving, I think specifically of that section of I Am Not Your Negro that we just went to see in which James Baldwin mentions very specifically that they were moving toward one another. Absolutely. We didn't get the chance to see that, obviously. So is the fact that Smiley is pushing this in the community, is he functioning as that voice saying that we can put these two things together into some sort of functional whole? Thinking about your point about him being a voice that can't be fully expressed, you have two men that are known for being some of the greatest orators Mm -hmm. ever and for the message that they were communicating. And so he is the voice that cannot communicate that message. Therefore, it's so easy to push him aside and therefore push that message aside. So no one else is standing up to say, I am the next great leader for this community. I'm the point that's going to gather us all together, whether it be violence or nonviolence, and be that voice. So as further evidence of his apolitical approach or his isolationist approach, the times that, in particular, Mookie tells him, go away, Smiley, not now, not now. I don't have time for this message. To me, that takes us directly to the character of DeMayer, who... We start to learn more bits about he was a person who was involved in civil rights activism earlier, but now is most likely a shell of that person. And again, when you add his handicap being his alcoholism, it's again easy to say, oh man, you've got nothing to teach me. That comes up significantly A little later on, which I want to talk about in more detail. His interaction with the younger generation. Yes. What other part does DeMayer play for you? He's the soul of the neighborhood. Yes. A guardian angel. Literally, in one case, when he saves a young boy from getting run over. It's indicative of the fact that he is still willing to sacrifice himself for the greater good. He comes across as the most pure and the most noble of intention of everybody. He specifically says... The mayor loves everybody, and everybody loves the mayor, except mother-sister. Yes. (laughs) And speaking of, he's still a man. Mm -hmm. He would still like to be with mother-sister, or whomever. And that's something that I really like in this. No one is one thing or the other. Mm -hmm. No one is so easily reduced down. Who's next then? Jade? Played by Spike Lee's sister, Mm Joie. I think it injects such a beautiful... It's really lovely dynamic, the brother-sister thing. There's such genuine affection, and they work so well together. And I wish she was in more stuff all the time. She's so natural, and she brings in this role specifically, I think, that moment of calmness mm-hmm. and grace mm-hmm. that is often lacking. We'll have a moment later when she comes into the neighborhood, and she's literally bathed in golden light. Mm-hmm. Is it different for people who don't have a sister? Because I very specifically relate to the fact that my sister Haley and I 
no matter what's going on, no matter how serious the thing is, that there's something that cuts through all of that because of your sibling connection. And it could be something as simple as in the scene in the very beginning when they break up a little bit and they leave it in. I don't think that that was planned. That little bit where they begin to laugh at each other. It's, it's such a, a beautiful and perfect moment. I'm so glad they so left natural. it in the scene. Yes. But is it relatable since you're an only child? I only know about siblings from the movie, so I guess okay. it's relatable okay. because that's what I kind of assume mm. people did or do. I have no siblings, so I have no idea. And then if we think of Jade as one of those three points of different sides of femininity mm-hmm. in the film, there's Jade, Tina, and Mother Sister. Okay. They're the three that I think of. Sure. I think it's also a great relationship that Jade and Mother Sister have. Again, Mother Sister being that person you know in your neighborhood, when she's doing her hair later Mm -hmm. on, that's something that I can really relate to. Does it feel also a little bit to you? It does to me, like this is a symbolic of a passing of the torch, that role in the neighborhood being handed down to the next woman who is going to be the conscience of the neighborhood potentially. You've got to have somebody who will point out when you're doing something wrong mm. and give you a hug when you're doing something great or you're sad. And they both are doing that. Mother sister being the more caustic yeah. of the two at this point because she's seen it all now. Right. She's tired of putting up with it. My grandma was the same way. Mother sister is very much a uh, go cut yourself a switch type of lady. Yeah. Which I can definitely relate to having in my life. And in this, mother sister has no family that we see. Jade, of course, has Mookie, but no family of her own, no husband or children that we see Mm -hmm. yet. Tina is the feckoned one in this trio. She's the one with a baby. She's also the one with a mouth. (laughs) She's sexual and angry in a way that the other two are not. And also, interestingly, and not coincidentally, a different ethnicity. And it makes interesting possibilities, again, when we look at these characters not being one thing or the other, an interaction that they have later on talking about their son, where he, maybe laughingly, but to me there's uh, truth in that, where he's talking about, uh, I don't want you to speak Spanish with my son. Mm -hmm. I want my son to speak English. Again, some of that immaturity coming out. Or if we're talking about that gray area, it could just be, I am staking a claim. I want my son to participate in a particular culture. Yes. I don't want my culture to be overshadowed or lost. And maybe our own biases, too, Mm. that wiggle their way in wherever there's a crack. Spike takes a lot of heat for not being a great actor a lot of the time. But when I watch him specifically with these women, with his sister and with Rosie Perez... There are moments that are so pure and easy and funny and light. He may not be able to pull it off all the time, but there are some real highlights in his performances when he is in close proximity to these women. They really bring out something special in what he does, I think. Agreed. And before I talk about another moment that I like with him and another actor, I'm thinking my last thought about Rosie, about Tina, is that she is quite powerless for the most part she can't compel him to live with her to take care of the son in the way that she would like him to she can't compel him necessarily to have more money than he does does she even want that though do you feel like does she want him around 24 7 i think in the way that we see her first with her mother asking for help with babysitting i think assistance is Mm. what she would like and i think we could all relate to that 
Not to have to do this by herself. Okay. But not specifically his assistance. Maybe not. And she's young too. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a lot for a young person to have motherhood thrust upon her. So getting back to the point I was going to make next, I love the scene with Spike and Richard Edson where he's talking about trying to get Vito to kick Pino's ass. I think that's a great, I think their relationship is great, and that feels really natural to mm. me, too. I think they work really well together. Richard Edson's a genius. Terrific. <laughs> what about bugging out? He obviously functions as our lone revolutionary, our voice of political activism in the neighborhood. With maybe more anger than sense, necessarily, sometimes, in the battles that he chooses, mm. but... They're the only battles that he has available to him. So he's got to stand his ground somewhere, mm-hmm. and it's going to be at Sal's in this instance. Okay, my last credits mention. Giancarlo Esposito made his Broadway debut at age eight, by the way. <laughs> okay. Let's swing to the other end of the spectrum then and talk about Pino, John Turturro's character. He's obviously, the, aside from the police officers, the most virulently racist character. Could you have played this character? Do you think you could do this? Me? Yeah, just as a general matter, of course, could you bring yourself to behave this way for a, for a role, for, for a performance? Because he does such a fantastic job. The guy is, it's John Turturro, so he's wonderful. But it seems like such a hard thing to do if this is not in you to make that manifest that way. I guess it goes back to nature versus nurture, that thing that you have to be taught to feel this way. Mm-hmm. You mentioned mirroring sal's possible ideas that he doesn't express right then but clearly at some point has you think about this neighborhood that he goes back to every night and he talks about his quote-unquote friends giving him such a hard time for being in this black neighborhood and that great scene with mookie later on where mookie's talking about who's your favorite singer on and on and on they're all black people you seem to draw this line between i'm not going to say the n-word between the inward and black people it's what are you what are you telling yourself and that story that he's created in his own mind of what's going on and who he is and who he wants to be i think it's an amazing challenge for an actor i wouldn't want to have to say the things that he says Mm -hmm. it's disgusting Mm -hmm. it's vomit inducing so no thanks it's a thankless (laughs) so thankless role and he's amazing in it right so if Spike calls up to cast you in something, you're probably... Well, okay. Full disclosure. Spike and I go way back. <laughs> okay. When I was 16 years old, I went to New York City. My mom and her friend and I were in a diner. In walks Spike Lee with the woman who would be his wife later mm. on. I knew who Spike Lee was because I've been paying attention for a long time. I gathered up my 16-year-old courage to go up to him and tell him I was a big fan and ask for his autograph, and he was really nice and did that for me. Hmm. So we've been pretty close ever since Okay. <laughs> but we do have that autograph displayed prominently on our mantelpiece. We sure do. I probably should have put it in some sort of protective thing, because it's a, that's a number of years now. Yeah. But yeah. So he might be calling me up to ask me to okay. play some sort of a douchebag. I don't know. <laughs> Girl in diner, ruining my meal. Yes. Oh, I was so conflicted, but I couldn't let that moment go by and yeah. not tell him what he meant to me. Yeah. And I'm glad I did, and I'm sorry that I interrupted your meal, Spike, if you're listening. 
But back to John Turturro, Spike chose an actor who has amazing depth, mm-hmm. whose outer appearance might suggest one thing, but is able to convey so much more and can play such a huge range of people. Well, he certainly has that Barton Fink feeling. And then to the person who was the only nomination for acting for the film, Danny Aiello. As Sal, the racist who doesn't think he's a racist. Yes. All of these characters are pretty complex, which is one of the things that makes this film such a treat to watch over and over again. Different things reveal themselves to you each time you do it. Sal, along with Mookie, are probably, those are probably the two most complex characters in the whole thing. Everyone else's motivations are a little more clear-cut as far as their outlook and how they genuinely feel. But Mookie and Sal are the two I feel like that maybe say a little bit of one thing and believe a little bit of another and do a little bit of a third instead. Thought, word, and deed don't necessarily line up completely for the two of them. I think it shows that some of us can compartmentalize. Mm -hmm. You can have this side that only lives when you take it out of this box when you're home at night and this other part of you that is just as true that does take pride in i've fed these kids i love these kids i've watched them grow up he is clearly enamored of jade Mm -hmm. in more than just a fatherly or neighborly sense Mm -hmm. he's also at heart a business owner that's something that you can't take away that means a great deal You've got to, again, watch where that money is coming from. You have that motivation. And he's got sons that he wants to have continue on in this business, and he feels that same fatherly affection for Mookie, he says. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think he does believe it. I feel it's genuine, Mm -hmm. all of those things. Yeah, a testament to two things. Aiello's performance, for which he was nominated, like you mentioned, and Spike's script, which is really good. Yes. I think that takes us to Radio Rahim. Mm Mm-hmm. He's kind of a cipher for me in this. He's he almost like a gunslinger just walking the streets. That gunslinger that everyone respects and gives a, a wide berth to. Even if he is challenged occasionally like he is when they have their radio showdown. With the Puerto Ricans, right. another ethnicity in the neighborhood. You get the distinct impression that, like they say, it is Radio Rahim's world and we're just living in it. The music is his message. Mm-hmm. That's what speaks for him. The music... And his rings, I'm sure most of our audience knows this, but just in case you don't, that is a very definite literal connection to Robert Mitchum in Night of the Hunter. He's got love and hate, his knuckle rings. And he tells his version of the same story that Robert Mitchum tells about the struggle between those two forces. The connections between those characters are super interesting to me. In the fates that they each meet, and in this instance in particular where he's telling that story, it's true coming from him. He believes it. Versus when Robert Mitchum tells the story, it is a con job. Yes. When Radio Rahim talks about love, KOs, hate, he's got a smile on his face, and it's a beautiful smile. Okay, so these are all the things that are going on in the neighborhood. We have established the pulse of the community. Just in time to take a break and for everybody to cool off. They very wisely open up a fire hydrant, which, again, is the thing I can relate to from the movies. I've never actually seen that done or been anywhere that had anything like that. I specifically thought about that, about how this is a window into another world for me, not with the hydrant thing itself, but when they're on the sidewalk scraping the edges of the cans down. That's just one of those touches that 
unless you've grown up there, unless you've done that, you don't see that. You see the fire hydrant thing all the time. You don't see the preparation to get ready to open the fire hydrant. I love that little touch. This section is notable right here at this break for introducing, I think, what are probably the best of the comic interludes. There's a sequence with the fire hydrant where they spray that into a gentleman's convertible who is trying to drive through the neighborhood. And more specifically, there's a great scene where John Savage scuffs Buggin' Out's new Air Jordans, which is one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever seen. That look on his face when he realizes what has happened to his shoes. We all know that is a crime against humanity. But there is a lot happening here, clearly, that is funny and sad and true, and it's one of those things where there are more layers to the joke than are immediately obvious. You mentioned that the gentrification was just beginning, and a lot of ideas are kicked back and forth here that, depending on which side you are on, true, not so true. Specifically when John Savage says, it's a free country. Is it? <laughs> How dare you say that thing? It is for you. Do you not understand that it is not necessarily for everyone else? But the parting shot, when they tell him to go back to Massachusetts, and he replies, I was born in Brooklyn. And their response to that, their absolute disgust yes. to the fact that he is a Brooklyn native. It's really funny, but there's a lot of other things that are happening there for me too when I watch it. It makes me realize you don't know everybody's story. What if he has grown up there and he loves the place just as much as they do? He might have grown up just around the block. And now that he has means to buy this brownstone, which he says he does own, why would he not want to stay in the place where he was born and raised? Now, don't come around here wearing that Larry Bird shirt. Right. If you are going to wear a jersey, it better be the Knicks. You need to have Clyde Frazier or Willis Reed or Earl Pearl Monroe. Don't come around. If you're going to wear 33, at least wear Patrick Ewing. Don't wear Larry Bird. But does he not have a legitimate claim to belong in a neighborhood just as much as they do if he's spent his entire life there? Which they don't know until he says. It's still at this moment, though, more on the side of humor mm -hmm. and frustration. There's no violence committed. Right. But that humor turns quickly because this is when we have that slow police crawl. Mm -hmm. The cruiser goes through the neighborhood staring out. Everybody's staring back, mouthing, what a waste. So here's that other thing that gentrification brings, which is this level of community policing that can be incredibly intrusive and aggressive and violent and unwarranted. The most interesting response, I think, that is generated from all that, the three guys on the corner, ML in particular, starts to talk about one of these days when I, and when I do this, when I own my own business, so forth and so on. And I think Robin Harris's response feels to me like he is a surrogate for Spike Lee in that spot when he is saying, I'm sick of hearing these old excuses. You guys talk, talk, talk. You say the same things. You're not doing anything. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. <laughs> and his solution to the problem may not be what Spike's would, but at least he has given a voice to, when are you going to stop talking about it and actually do something? It's that idea of how free is this free country. We yeah. have the Koreans who have started a business, to their mind, very quickly. When is the black person given the same opportunity to do that? And what's an excuse and what's not an excuse? 
because I can't imagine, with all of the systemic racism that's in place, that a Korean shopkeeper necessarily has it any easier than a black shopkeeper might. Are they not fighting a similar struggle? Not the same struggle necessarily, but at least are they not encountering similar roadblocks? And because the language is the same, those stories, those voices aren't heard or communicated mm. to the other. There's a profound moment at the very end when brokenly it's asserted, I'm just like you. Mm -hmm. I'm the same as you. Right. Which is met more with amusement and resignation than yes. acceptance. Yes. Exactly. I wonder how much that they feel that is actually true on both sides. For the Korean character, is it more out of self-preservation that he says this? Does he truly believe it? And for all the people in the black community, they recognize, yes, we are both outsiders, but our struggle and our pain is far different and deeper than what you have gone through in this country. Right. We have a conflict that comes up at this moment, which feels more like the generations to me. It's when this group of young folks that we keep seeing, including a lot of our comedians, mm -hmm. Martin, are basically hassling Demare. And my question was here, why is Ahmad specifically, why is he so angry at Demare? Because they're talking about him being a drunk mm. and just taking up space basically in this neighborhood, always in the way. And I'm thinking about this symbol of a civil rights person who is now no longer a symbol, has this glory passed away mm -hmm. that he once earned. Should it have? Should it always be there? DeMayer brings up the specter of your parents raised you better than this. How do we know what his parents were like? Maybe mm. we're seeing his dad. Who knows? Right. I thought that that was some of it. I think that that was why he specifically brings that up. Or at least why the it's in the script. He mentions your parents raised you better than that. I think Steve White's character is specifically responding to something in his childhood or in his past that he sees reflected that he is still struggling with, that he does not like. And it is so strong that it overshadows this particular man's struggle. All the things that he has done that open doors for them that they can't even comprehend. This was 1989. We were barely 25 years legitimately into the civil rights movement at that point. Those wounds are fresh still. The dust has barely settled on that very beginning salvo. If we think about those specific characters in the age that I'm kind of guessing that they are mm -hmm. or are playing, they were born on or after Martin Luther King had already died. Mm -hmm. And it's that short memory for them. And I think again about that idea of these are not conversations that people are having for the first time. This is lived in anger mm -hmm. that we're seeing bubbling out in a different way. Again, the heat and the proximity and the I've had enough at this point. Another reason we need Smiley, because they do not remember if they ever knew. They have easily forgotten what the generations that came before them had to go through just so they can have it the way it is now, which is not great, but it's leagues better than it was. I guess the question that's ultimately raised, is it? Is it that much better? That's what I was just struggling with yeah. as you said that. Again, thinking about the movie that we just watched, I Am Not Your Negro. Just because LBJ signed that paper, how much does that actually mean in terms of real, practical, on-the-ground, person-to-person experience? And it's 
Pino, who I think makes kind of an interesting point about the leaders of today being that time, 1989. He talks about Al Sharpton, Jesse Jackson, Louis Farrakhan, and they're very different people than Malcolm and Martin. (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot to sink your teeth into. Mm -hmm. It bears repeated viewings. Yeah. Well, applicably to that conversation, we have our second montage right here. And as opposed to the first one where everyone was cooling down, this one heats up. Because this one is character to character issuing a string of the worst racial epithets that they can come up with. Interrupted, thankfully, by Senior Love Daddy, who reminds them, you need to cool that shit out. (laughs) Once again, being the voice of reason, the voice of the community. It's hot today. This is not productive. No good can come of this, so stop it. In addition to calming everybody down, Senior Love Daddy also does the roll call coming up here soon, and it is one of my favorite moments in the film for one specific reason. When he mentions out of that litany of names of influential musicians, M to May, my heart jumps because I love that band so much. We, my friends that I went to school with when I was in grade school, we used to shop at this record store in Lawton. There's a town south of where I lived that is basically an army town. Fort Sill is there. So soldiers are coming through and you get all sorts of cultures mixed on that army base. And because of that, you had the one black-owned record store for hundreds of miles, maybe, from where we were, Brothers and Sisters Records. And we would go in that place. Once every two weeks or so, we'd go record shopping when I was a kid. My friends and I, that's where we got the first Run DMC record. That's where we got the first Lakeside records that we ever had. And m was one of those discoveries that we made because that stuff was sexy. Is that the Juicy Fruit That's song? It. Oh, <laughs> That's yeah. It. Yeah. Well, I'm, I love all those artists that he mentions, but specifically my heart has a, a real, I have a real soft spot for m to me. And when he mentions that, it's like, okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. If I had a radio station that good, I wouldn't listen to anything else. I love We Love Radio. So with the strains of Juicy Fruit ringing in my head, we segue into this conversation that Sal is having with Pina, where he specifically asks, why do you have so much anger in you? Do you think we got a good answer to that question? Yes and no. I think before what happens happens, this is a conversation that they would continue to have. Mm -hmm. Yes and no in the sense that Pino thinks he has a good reason and it's not a good reason. Yes and no in that I think that they are saying as much as they have the wherewithal to say. Okay. Based on their own self-awareness. Yes. Okay. Those compartments again. It's a great scene. This, though, is where something completely unrelated to the scene occurred to me that I wanted to make sure I mentioned. This is an example of a film that, for me, has underscoring that works. Mm -hmm. I am not a fan of underscoring. It was a technique that, for me rightly went out after the 30s and 40s but music is wall to wall in this Mm. and i think it completely feels totally real for this neighborhood well i'm a big fan of bill lee as a musician and a composer and those first four films that he did the scores for are some of my favorite film scores that i've ever heard and i don't know again if it's because of 
the family thing generating something particularly special and how closely they might have collaborated on that because they did have a terrible falling out and haven't spoken to each other for a long, long time now, it seems. But early on, when they were working that closely together, it resulted in some of my favorite film music ever. I feel the same way about it. It's perfect to me. Feels like a neighborhood you want to live in. Mm -hmm. The other significant exchange that Sal has in this stretch is when Jade comes to visit the pizzeria, Mookie's sister. We talked about this briefly before. Clearly, Sal likes Jade. It's a very flirty exchange, both directions. It feels like a little bit more on his side, though. I don't get sure, the sense she, that she would go out with she him. She doesn't dissuade him, though. No. She plays into it a little bit. Yes, it, for me it feels a little bit more kindly than anything. but Humoring him? No, not humoring him, just they have a warm relationship. Mm. It feels like that's kind of the end-all, be-all of okay. it for her. But we're watching it through Mookie's eyes, really. Right. And Pino's. It does specifically pan across. It does. And show us both of their reactions, which they are unified in their response to. They're not having it. No. Not okay. It seems like maybe a little thing, but is it just enough of a little thing to further put a wedge between Mookie and Sal and let this thing happen later that takes place at the end? Because this is my sister we're talking about. It hadn't really occurred to me before you just asked that. I guess, is it that part of me that can't relate to that? I don't have that sense of protection. Maybe. So it felt like, eh, you know, it might come back later, it might not, but it doesn't feel like it totally informs the ending. I could be totally wrong, though. Now we get another section that I absolutely love and can totally relate to. It's another one of those sort of breaks. Okay. This is the Icy Man. (laughs) And the ice cream man coming into the neighborhood. I had the ice cream man. I didn't have the icy man as much until I grew up. By and icy man, you mean the shaved ice cream. Yeah, yes. But that sense of moments of youth yeah, that I think a lot of us can relate to. Sure. Getting so excited that you run out in front of the car in the street because here comes the ice cream man. Here comes Mr. Softy. And a little boy does that. A little boy that we met earlier. And Demayer saves him. His mom comes out. She doesn't know what's happened. And the assumption is immediately the mayor has done something to the boys, hit him or done something. And he has to explain himself that, no, I actually saved him. That results in a pretty severe spanking of the little boy by the mother, which for me was we've got these moments of youth and then immediately the realities of the failings of adults. Speaking of adult... This was a big deal to me when I was a kid. This is the ice bath Mm, scene. mm -hmm. Tina has ordered a pizza so she can get Mookie to come over. And he takes the ice cubes to cool her off. And it's a fair amount of nudity. Mm -hmm. And I will say again, it was a big deal to me when I was a kid. As much as there is the nudity and the sort of erotic play with the ice cube, I really do think the most important scene, and maybe the most erotic part of it, is... The aftermath of that when he's about to go back to work and it's in that tight close-up on their faces and he's just being playful and saying over and over again, okay, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, yes, I'm leaving, which is a device that he uses to great effect as that Mars Blackman character and she's got to have the repetition pushing something so far that first it's funny, then it's annoying, then it's funny again. He's a genius at that. Yeah. And using it in this aspect really brings out 
something special in their relationship, those two characters right there. I really liked that. And I think the aftermath part, that little bit is probably, to me, the most erotic part of the whole thing. I think it's still a big deal, and I guess I don't want to not say it enough, which is the sexuality of a woman of color Mm -hmm. being displayed in an organic way. Yeah. And showing her amazing gifts in all their glory and not shying away from that. Yeah. Well, that's probably the last pleasant moment that we're going to have because now we are moving towards the conclusion. There's one line from Vito in this before we get to the end that it's one of those small things, but one of those profound things, and I didn't want to skip it when he is talking in response to Pino, and he simply says, you don't know everything you think you know. In that way that only a little brother can say it, that's absolutely true, that the big brother doesn't want to hear it, but he needs to hear. I really like that delivery. I love Richard Henson so much. I wish he was in more stuff all the time. I love that guy. And I think he does a great job specifically boiling everything in that relationship down to him telling Pino that thing right then, right before all hell breaks loose. The thing that I like before all hell breaks loose is Sal talking about there's nothing like a family in business working together. Mm. And he's referring to all of them, including Mookie. Yeah. And that look of sort of surprise on Pino's face. And also I think he's touched in a way. You think? I think I think there's an element of that and then it's all gonna The thing I read in every one of their faces was, Dad, what are you talking about? Mm, okay. I don't I'm, believe in what you're saying is what it struck me as. I'll have to I'll have to watch it again and see what occurs to me yeah. the next time. That's a good point. I can't remember what I thought they were thinking in nineteen eighty nine when I saw it. And I may have thought different things because it does move for me as I evolve myself. You know, like a good film does. As I grow, different things happen to me as I watch it every time. But this time, I specifically thought, nobody's buying this. Okay. Do you think Sal buys it? I think he does. Or I he think does. he wants to. Right. I think it's that case that we were saying before of, he believes all of it, even the contradictory things, when he is saying them. Well, further to your point, what's about to happen, watching it now after what has happened just in the past decade, makes me feel so many different things than it did when I was 15 Hmm. watching it. Well, I was 19 at the time. So I was at that point where I was really beginning to form my adult worldview. And, you know, when you are going to college and you are encountering all of these ideas for the first time, it's a, a righteous anger that you are operating on, probably. And maybe it was similar for you at 15. I don't know if you were quite that incensed as you were just upset at 15, if that's a different thing, and then the anger came later. I think, sadly, more cynicism now, too, because Hmm. I've seen these things take place on a phone now. Someone holding a phone up to say, look at what is happening and I just then watched this take place in 1989 and how many times before and how many times since. It, it feels different and worse. Worse in the sense that we haven't moved forward nearly as much as we... When is it ever going to stop? Yeah. Okay, well, let's get to the yeah, sequence. the thing. So, Bugging Out has corralled Radio Rahim, and together with Smiley, they go back to 
tell Sal, we are going to boycott you. You're done here. We're going to shut you down. And Radio Rahim, of course, has the public enemy playing full volume. Sal and Radio Rahim and Bugging Out are yelling back and forth. Things get more and more heated until finally Sal smashes his radio. He says the N-word. Sal says the Mm. N-word. Before now, it's been Pino multiple times. Right. And for me, what felt like quickly Sal goes there. It doesn't feel like as much of a surprise to me because of his willingness to pick up the bat the first time they had this argument. Yes. Thinking back to every other foundation that he's laid that I'm a good guy and I believe in this place and I believe in these people, Mm -hmm. but it's still these people. It's different than me. Right. And he's the one who takes that step. He destroys the boombox. Which starts a huge brawl. Radio Rahim drags Sal over the counter and is choking him in the floor and it spills out into the street. A crowd gathers and then the police come. And there are people trying to pull others off. There are people trying to get involved. There are people saying stop. There's everybody doing everything. Mm -hmm. But it's the police who ultimately kill Radio Rahim with the nightstick chokehold. Mm -hmm. They choke the life out of him. We watch this happening. We watch his legs come off of the ground, and it occurs to me how quickly something can happen. How quickly a life can be snuffed out. That's one of the primary things that I have here in my notes. Specifically, there are two things about it that give me that terrible feeling. Yeah. One, how fast this can happen. And two, how when you woke up that morning, you had no idea this is where you were going to be come 12 hours later. There is nothing that can prepare you for a confluence of circumstances like this. So Radio Rahim is being murdered mm. right now. Bugging Out is in handcuffs in the back of a police car, getting punched from the front seat to the back seat. Radio Rahim ends up basically face down, a person at each limb being carried away. And that other sense of you can be a bystander to something and... It can be erased in front of your eyes. They take him away. Who's going to know what ultimately happened? You can bring this wall of silence down so quickly, and there's no information. Yeah, pre-internet, no iPhone, no YouTube. How is this information going to go anywhere beyond the borders of this neighborhood? And it's a question that the people that live in that neighborhood and other neighborhoods like that have been asking for decades. Still are asking, but now there's more accountability it seems like there are more eyes on people but still like you mentioned how much has that changed anything yeah new iberia louisiana recently Mm -hmm. among many other places someone says they didn't have to kill the boy and that again reminds me even though we're talking about people who may or may not be living up to their responsibilities may or may not be as mature as you would hope they are we're talking about kids Mm -hmm. in some of these instances well yusuf hawkins who i mentioned earlier in the show 16 when that happened yeah here's again where we hear from sal and to me this is we've gone from zero to 60 in a short amount of time Mm -hmm. he's talking about you do what you got to do just another way that he exposes his true colors basically and now it's going to turn again it's mookie who gets the trash can who deliberately takes the items out of the can takes the lid off and throws it through the window. 
but it's Smiley who lights the match. Mm -hmm. So I guess he's much more Malcolm than Martin at that juncture, Smiley is. Much more by any means necessary than nonviolent opposition. And mother-sister is yelling to burn it down Mm -hmm. as Jade is trying to hold her back. And then we see that wall of fame go up in flames. And it continues to get worse in another new, different, terrible way. We have more cops arrive and fire trucks arrive and those hoes eventually get turned onto people. Mm -hmm. I have an idea how powerful it is for a black audience because they are familiar with the civil rights footage, seeing people be sprayed with water hoses, seeing dogs set on people. For a white audience that was watching that in 1989, if you are not, say, a PBS watcher, do you know that footage as well? Yeah. Does that make as much of an impact on you? I mean, I was raised knowing that these things happen. Yes. And watching human beings be just tossed around like garbage. It just the weight of a person taken down from that force. Mm. <sighs> Specifically using that image, though. He's being mm-hmm. provocative. He's He explicitly says he's... He's being provocative, but not untruthful. Oh, no, not at all. But he is using a very specific iconography to make a very specific point. He is, and it existed in that neighborhood. Mm. So what we're left with is just a sickening feeling in the aftermath. Everything is ashes and the remnants of Rahim's radio and the realization for everyone in the neighborhood that they're simply not safe. Less realization and more continuing confirmation. Sure, exactly. And through this... Mookie steps up in a different way for himself, for his family, maybe for neither of those things, for the community, and he demands to get paid Mm. from Sal. A couple of interesting things about this final scene. One, Sal literally throws the money at him, which is what he's figuratively been doing with his problems with the community up to now. And two, and much more interesting to me, is this tone of regret and capitulation between the two of them. Almost as if I can imagine years down the line that they have reconciled in some way or another. The fatherly feeling that he seems to have for Mookie prior to that point coming back into play again. And Mookie not doing what I'm sure a number of people would have been tempted to do in that situation. Turn your back on him forever. It feels more like an ellipsis, if anything. The look on Danny Aiello's face and... How they end this is not goodbye. It's an actual, more adult conversation, which is, the reality is, this was property. Mm-hmm. You'll get insurance for this. Sure. Give me my money. I am your employee. I need to go see my son now. And he takes the money. And they still look at each other. They don't turn their backs necessarily on each other in that way that a period would feel nor do they try to necessarily defend or explain themselves in any kind of convoluted way. So I think of that as it's not the end, necessarily. Because we do know, after all, the block is still standing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, significantly, the focus in this case was specifically Sal's. What was a miniature riot was not turned outward, but had a very specific focus. And you mentioned the last thing we're left with are these two quotes. One, violence is immoral, and the other, violence is self-defense. Even intelligence. But the picture, 
that we see one of Smiley's pictures, it's that photo of Malcolm and Martin smiling together. Mm-hmm. A very well-known photo, but it's a different tone completely. And it is that sense of togetherness, maybe figuring a way through. Well, there are a couple of things about that that are sort of important to the wrap-up of the whole thing for me. One thing I don't want to forget, though, before we get there, just prior to the end, the thing that really demonstrates how the world outside of that neighborhood is looking at what happened there, when Senior Love Daddy comes back on the radio, he specifically mentions that the mayor of New York City, Ed Koch at the time, was starting a panel to investigate the incident, the property damage. Right. That's what's important to the world outside. Not the fact that a kid is dead. Not the fact that the police murdered someone. No one addresses that. Which was then echoed by almost everyone who wanted to talk about the movie, it seemed like. The question asked so many times when you read interview after interview after interview is, did Mookie do the right thing? Right. People more worried about what happened to Sal's pizzeria. No one says, maybe it's because we know they didn't do the right thing, but no one says, did the police do the right thing? Right. No one wanted to have that conversation. They wanted to focus on Mookie and property destruction and his quote-unquote betrayal of Sal. Yes. Which is fucking ridiculous. Yes. I gotta think again about watching Rahim's face Mm. and watching life drain out of his body. And how many times do we have to watch it? No insurance policy can replace that. But to get back to what you were saying about the two quotations, do you place any significance on the order in which they are presented? Does it seem like there's a little bit of softening up the audience with Martin Luther King first, before then following that with a more strident Malcolm X? you think there's a significance in the order that those are given to you as an audience member? There had to have been. The sort of dorky significance for me is the movie that would come after, the story of Malcolm X. Mm. And to me thinking, or me assuming that maybe Malcolm was just more in Spike's head at that point. Mm. But I don't know. That's the movie person talking. Because it could definitely function the other way. It could function as, if you come with Malcolm X first, then it makes whatever Martin Luther King is saying more palatable, less frightening to a white audience. He is the more acceptable alternative to someone who is a little bit more revolutionary. Maybe, or you think about the progression of ideas in age, Mm -hmm. youth being violent, age being acceptance sometimes. Mm -hmm. You lose your fire, you hone your approach, you learn how to more effectively communicate. Is that selling out? If we talk again about everything I learned, I learned from the movies, how Malcolm changed after his trip to Mecca. Mm Mm-hmm. And how they were coming closer together in ideology. Now, how many times have you seen this? Just twice Just now. Just twice? Mm-hmm. Do you feel like now, the second viewing, it was telling you anything you don't know? The first time, I assume, it was. Yes. The second time... Gosh, that's tough. I think every time is an opportunity to learn more about humans. Mm-hmm. About the realities of life, probably not so much now. Again, even just the last few years have been terrible. Mm -hmm. Terrible things have happened that we've had 
access to in a way that we have not before. So I think for the most part, I would say no, it's not necessarily telling me something I didn't know before. I assume I know the answer to this question, too. We mentioned how, yes, it is specifically provocative talking about the iconography is using. Does it feel reckless in that way, though? Not to me, no. Because he received a lot of criticism for that. And going back and reading these reviews now, they are absurd when I look at them. There was, if I remember correctly, a real fear that black people were going to riot somehow because of this. There was going to be violence in the theaters. Specifically, David Denby's was the worst of all that. One, he called the end of the movie a shambles, which I don't see at all. I don't think so. I don't think any moment in the movie is a shambles. And he implied that if some audiences, quote-unquote, that is specifically the phrase he used, go wild, Spike Lee is partly responsible. The implication being that a black audience is not going to be able to separate fact from fiction enough to control themselves. Inherently, the things he's saying that are implied in this review seem so out of line and ridiculous when I look at it now. I'm sure I didn't read it then. I didn't read the review that I recall. But so many critics making this argument that you mentioned that there are going to be riots in theaters, patently insulting. And the same idea of Radio Rahim's life has no real value, that there aren't actual things happening in the world that are worth us rioting about. Yeah. That somehow this has created them? That this was somehow made up? Yeah, that's a huge reason. Well, we'll get into, this is a perfect excuse to get into why I chose it for the show. Because it's an extremely important film to me. It is one of my top ten all-time Desert Island never-want-to-be-without movies. And that's because it was hugely educational for me. When I was 19, because of where I grew up in the southwest corner of Oklahoma, where there is not a lot of cosmopolitan culture, if you go back and listen to our episode of The Exiles, you can hear me talk about growing up as the whitest Comanche around. But because of where I grew up and sort of being isolated from larger metropolitan areas, I, like you, experienced a lot of things through film the first time. And I essentially was not exposed to a lot of black culture just by virtue of geography. Urban culture in general. Specifically, I mentioned those things that are not second nature to me, like the shaved ice guy and the scraping the cans for the fire hydrant. All of those are details that I think any kid that grew up in an urban environment in a certain period of time are well versed in. These things are just what life is. And I did not get to experience those in any way except on the movie screen. So until I get to these places and meet the people that live there and see what their lives are like, this is how I have to take it in. This is how I have to learn about what other people's lives are like. And this was the biggest example of that that I can think of, maybe in my entire life. At least at the time it came to me. I might have learned more about specific other places and other people since then via one experience or another. But at the time, this was like a bomb going off in my consciousness. And I owe the man a great deal for how much he taught me about empathy and giving me this opportunity to use this movie to educate myself about a world I've never seen before at that point people I've never met. It taught me a lot about empathy, basically. And it's the key to the whole film, not just for me being a better person after experiencing the film, but for the film to succeed itself. He's trying to tell me something and I should listen. 
is basically what it comes down to. It challenged my views and encouraged a more critical approach of the things that I had assumed to be true. And anytime that happens, at least to me, that is extremely valuable. And this was the first biggest time that ever happened to me. I'm not going to counter any of that. I mean, I had a vastly different experience. Hmm. But How so? Well, Roanoke, Virginia is a whole lot of black people. And it's a sanctuary city. Okay. And so we had a huge Vietnamese population that okay. I was in school with. And there was soul food restaurants across the street from where my grandmother and aunt lived. And my best friend was Fisher, who loved Earth, Wind, and Fire and was a gay black man. <laughs> So it was a little bit different, but, and then, but then I was watching in Boise, Idaho, which is a totally different place, but, and I'll make another pitch for the message, not bogging the film down. There are still, even if you took all of that away, amazing performances by amazing performers at the top of their game. Well, okay, Miss Cosmopolitan Roanoke has everything. (laughs) How about a recommendation? I chose another of my absolute favorite Spike Lee films. You are not about to steal my recommendation. Oh, no, am I? Go ahead. Okay. This blew me away when I saw it in the theater. I would love to do an episode about it at some point. In the meantime, I chose 25th Hour. Is that yours? (sighs) No, it's not mine. Phew. Okay. (laughs) From 2002, directed by Spike Lee. He did not write it. This was a little bit of an anomaly. Actually written and adapted by David Benioff from his novel. Starring Edward Norton, Rosario Dawson, Barry Pepper, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and many other terrific folks. It's about a New York drug dealer who is contemplating his life in the 24 hours before he is about to serve a long prison term. Inspired also by a pretty famous scene in it of that same sort of rant. Mm -hmm. Everything about New York in this instance, including 9-11. This was just after 9-11. There's a pretty staggering moment in it that I won't talk to you about. I want you to see it. Oh, I've seen it. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you hadn't for some reason. Well, the audience listening, if you haven't seen it, you want to be surprised by this specific moment. I love this. It makes me feel really deeply. I hope everybody watches it. So how about you, what I didn't steal? What you didn't steal from me is my second favorite Spike Lee movie, Crooklyn, from 1994. I love this movie almost as much as Do the Right Thing. Is it because of the family? It's exactly that. Okay. Also, specifically the connections for me from this film to the other, also Summertime, also Bed-Stuy, and it's a semi-autobiographical look at Spike's upbringing. It's a story of family life in Brooklyn in 1973, and it is just a really nice slice of life. Its true achievement, I feel like, is that the cast feels like a family, because you have top-notch actors for one thing, specifically the performances from Alfred Woodard, Delroy Lindo, and Zelda Harris are fantastic. It is again one of those windows into another world, and I recommend it because if you can't for some reason connect to do the right thing, if you can't find that empathy that thing that can teach you about someone else because it's too upsetting or too incendiary or whatever, then maybe look at Crooklyn instead and find your way in via that. Because when you watch this, you realize that whatever our background, we are really not all that different, especially when it comes to how we deal with the hopes and dreams and disappointments of family interaction. 
all the problems that are inherent in family life cross those lines. Those are not bound by where you grew up, what your skin color is. So many of those things are universal. And this is a great portrayal of that that feels super accessible to me. Plus, it is wall to wall with great music as well. It is. So, two great, specifically, Spike Lee recommendations, 25th Hour and Crooklyn. And that brings us to the end of episode 41. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. You can just search for our name in either one of those places. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has either given us feedback or shared the show since the last time. Toby Miller, Craig Eastman and Scott Morris over at FUDS on Film, Mark Herney at Criterion Close-Up, Travis Trudell, Byron Fenris, Jacob Booth, Jeff Duncanson, John Stephen Walsh, Tim Lego, and Jane Sankner. Thanks a lot. We appreciate you guys telling anyone about the show anytime you get the chance. We are on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Google Play, or pretty much any podcatcher that you use. You can find us there. If you would like to leave us a rating or review on any of those services, we'd appreciate that too. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 